reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. <clears throat> because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is the word of God. Hey, my name is Cameron Hayes. My name is Sarah Hayes, and we've been married for eight months. So how did we meet? It's a funny story, actually. We actually met here at Grace Community Church. It was after, I believe, the 930 service, and I was actually talking to my friend Jennings Vess, and uh, this woman approaches me that I've never seen before, and it was Sarah's mom, Angie. And she asked me if uh, I was available, and she said, you'd be perfect for my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> We've both been coming to Grace since about 2018, actually. We both kind of started coming around the same time then. To me, loving Sarah unconditionally is not getting upset when I go to make a cup of coffee in the morning and there's no coffee mugs and I realize that she left them all in her car <laughs> the night before. <laughs> but on a serious note, loving Sarah unconditionally to me is being steadfast in my love with her, being consistent through the highs and lows that we will experience um, not only just through eight months of marriage, but as we continue to grow and as we can, the years come in our marriage, um, it's just being consistent and steadfast and loving her in the ways that she enjoys being loved through touch and quality time. I know her, her two love languages, so um, just loving her in those ways. What does a biblical marriage look like? To me, I think it's two people who love the Lord individually and then help support each other and grow each other to love the Lord more together, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And I think like a biblical relationship to me is like, you can tell what a biblical relationship is because of the way that a couple spends their time, their effort, their resources, and how they spend their time together. How do I respect Cam unconditionally? I think um, before us even getting married, understanding that he was a person I could respect. And then within our marriage, understanding that neither of us are perfect and he's not going to be perfect all the time and so even if we disagree about something or maybe our opinions differ a little bit that doesn't mean I have to lose respect for him um, and understanding that God has designed a marriage to be the way it is for a reason and I think that's helpful. Hello I'm Doug Gooch. And I'm Jane Googe, and we've been married for 40 years. My ideal of a uh, successful biblical marriage is one that's centered first on Christ. Uh, Christ has to be the cornerstone that, that 
all marriages are built on if they're going to be successful. But the second thing I believe also is that you never arrive. Uh, we've been at it for 40 years and we still roll up our sleeves figuratively every day on For a biblical marriage, um, you have to put God first and then your spouse and then your family, your children, um, and uplift them every day. For me to love Jane uh, unconditionally means that sometimes uh, I have to step back and be, be second. I need to put her before me. A wise man once told me years ago that marriage is not 50-50. Sometimes it's 99 and 1. <laughs> and that's sometimes how we have to put the other person first and, and put our feelings, ourselves, down. Not to destroy ourselves, but as Janice already pointed out, to uplift her. To respect Doug for me is to see him as he is, but to also not to destroy him in front of others, not to talk down about him, um, but to encourage him and uplift him. Because when I do that, when I tear him down, then it tears him down in, in the eyes of other people, and I don't want to do that. And the other thing is, I don't, I don't doubt his love, just like I don't doubt God's love for me. I always want him to know that I love him unconditionally. To live out a gospel-centered marriage, uh, and the thing that I've learned over the years is uh, the more I get into the Word, the more I get into devotions, the more I get into my prayer life, it seems like the boat that she and I share together as we sail through this marriage hits less rocky ways. Now we still have problems, we still have issues, but those things we're able to navigate a whole lot easier with that underpinning of God's Word, prayer before God. Uh, those are the kinds of things that keeps us adrift when things get rough. So grateful for uh, these couples and for what they shared. And they did so without having seen my sermon. And you're going to see some significant parallels between what they shared and what we are going to learn from God's word. I want to give you a little bit of the inside of how I prepare a sermon. Uh, I go to a text. I begin to study the words uh, in the original language. So this is uh, obviously because it's in the New Testament, it's in Greek, and I look at that and I finally make it over to what we call sermon land to where it's presentable to you. And when I get to that point, it is a full manuscript, meaning I've typed everything I plan to say uh, and I really sense God's work and leading during that time and I come to you, but then hopefully by the time I get here, I've internalized it to, in such a way to where that my notes are helpful but not necessary. Uh, they guide me and I don't read them. What I discovered this morning as I was reading through my notes and preparing as I do every Sunday morning is that there are things I just don't want to miss. So I'm afraid I'm going to look down more today than normal. And that's why I don't want to miss any of what is here. I also realize that uh, as we are here some of you are in not a good place in your marriage. 
And so a sermon like today may be difficult for those reasons. Others of you, everything's just good, and maybe it's never been better. So wonderful. And you can celebrate that. Wherever you are, I hope you receive this as from the Lord. Um, In 1972, a company started, and they started around picture frames. Uh, They were a company that began to, uh, where you could go in and get custom framing done. Two years later, they renamed themselves Hobby Lobby. And so Hobby Lobby is now well more than picture frames, isn't it? All kinds of things. Hobby Lobby was started by David Green. And David Green is a committed Christian, a follower of Jesus. And his mission then for his company is a reflection of his own Christian values. Listen to what he what their company's mission statement is. Hobby Lobby aims to honor the Lord by following biblical principles. Uh, They do this by establishing a work environment that builds character, strengthening individuals, and nurturing families, providing a return on its owner's investment so that he can share the Lord's blessing with its 13,000 employees. No Hobby Lobby stories open on Sunday, quote, in order to allow our employees and customers more time for worship and family. It was a few years ago that Hobby Lobby refused to cave to the then government demand that they provide a certain abortion access for their employees. And that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And Hobby Lobby won that. What is interesting is that uh, the pundits and the critics began to try to poke holes in Hobby Lobby. Could they find within this organization inconsistencies? What they discovered was that a company years ago, this is several years ago, that at that time, If you walked into Hobby Lobby and got a job running the cash register, the minimum wage was $13 an hour. They were committed to taking care of their employees. Why is that? At the core of a Christian family, a Christian marriage, a Christian-owned business, a Christian college or university, a Christian preschool, a day school, A Christian camp is an ethic, a way of being that permeates every endeavor by that organization, that family, that school, whoever it may be. It's a Christian ethic, a way of being. Uh, So if that is the case, what is the ethic? The Christian ethic is built around an event in human history called the crucifixion. When you say we are a Christian company or we are a Christian marriage, what you're saying is that our company, our marriage, our school is built around the cross. God sending his only son to die for sinners is unthinkable. Jesus, who never committed a sin, taking on the sins of humanity, is unfair. The just 
dying for the unjust. Purity dying for impurity. Perfection bleeding for imperfection. The clean dying for the unclean. Compassion dying for indifference. Love dying for hatred. Peace dying for chaos. Life dying for death. Truth dying for life, rest, dying for the weary, grace, dying for legalism, joy, dying for sorrow. Not only is this the defining moment in history, if you know Jesus, it is your defining moment. You look back in your life and go, the change that changed me is when Jesus came to live in me. He did something in me that forever since has made me into a new person. Paul's point in Ephesians 5 is that your marriage, if it is to be a Christian one, must be centered and in fact centered only on that reality of a dying Jesus who died that you might live. A Christian marriage then is cross-centered. Even before Paul addresses marriage, he says generally, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, imitate God. And if you're going to, it will involve sacrifice. In light of that, then, Ephesians gives two instructions, one to wives and the other to husbands. The instructions to wives, since Jesus gave himself up for you, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Now, I realize that I'm treading on unpopular ground. I realize that. I realize that the year is 2022. I realize that I am preaching from an old text that I believe and our church believes still matters today. In light of that, I'll walk into it and let God's word speak. The word submit has at its core the notion of order. God has established certain leadership and authority roles within the family, and submission is a humble recognition of that divine ordering. Uh, it's a bit nerdy, but the word submit is in the middle uh, voice in the Greek, meaning that submission is voluntary. It is never by the elimination or breaking of the human will much less by means of a servile submissiveness. It does not imply inferiority at all. As a matter of fact, the words are chosen so carefully that it says, submit to your own husbands. Not every woman submit to every man. That would be Paul creating a patriarchal, normative, cultural uh, reality. That's not what he's doing. He says, submit to your own husbands. 
This means that women can be bosses. They can run for president of the United States. They can serve in a multitude of capacities. But when it comes to order within the marriage, there is a cause to submit. Because every good organization has order. Someone leads, someone follows. But every good leader is also a good follower. The wife submits to her husband. The husband submits to Christ. And this may surprise you, Christ submits to the Father. First uh, Corinthians 15, 28, talking of Jesus, when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will be subjected or submitted to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's a deep vein in theology. It's called the eternal subordination of the Son. We have no time to get into it today, but the, the, the thought is that Jesus, since eternity past, though he is God, and though he became God in human flesh, as, as the Son of God submitted to the Father. Uh, that's deep, isn't it? When you choose to submit to your husband, you're in good company. You're with Jesus who submits to his Father. Occasionally, people will ask me, out of curiosity, I imagine, Jerry, you're the pastor of the church, so who's your boss? Well, first of all, I hate the term boss, and I think people who are bosses who use it, use it because they're trying to prove something. It's just a personal philosophy. But who's your boss? What you should know is we have a team of elders here who do an annual evaluation of me. They assess my leadership. They assess my shepherding. They assess how I preach and uh, they assess how I lead my own wife and children. What I do, they assess me annually. We meet monthly. They check in. I submit to them. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Submission to your husband is done as if you were submitting to the Lord. Notice the next phrase and what qualifies it for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The word head refers to a leader or a ruler. What did Jesus, who is both our leader and our ruler, do for us? He saved us. Submission then is cast in light of Jesus' saving work. But then here comes the question that's been asked of me on more than one occasion. But what if my husband isn't leading well? It's a good question. Am I still called to submit? Yes, Never called to sin in your submission. Any husband who expects his wife to sin isn't leading well. Some of you will have to look beyond your husband in your submission. 
On certain days when you want to retaliate, you look at Jesus on the cross and say to Jesus, I submit to him because I submit to you, not because he submits to you. You could even add, Jesus, this is so unfair, but so was you hanging on the cross for sins I committed. I do this, Jesus, as to you. In my translation, 51 words are given as instruction to wives and 140 words to husbands. I think that probably says we need more help, so let's jump in. Since Jesus gave himself up for you, husbands, love your wife like the Lord loves her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's interesting that husbands are told nowhere in scripture to rule over their wives. Husbands are commanded to love. And this love is cast in light of Jesus' love who handed himself over. He went to the cross as a willing victim. And as a husband, you must be willing to give up your life for your wife. Now, I know when I say that, especially in McDowell County, that some of you go, well, I'd die for her. Somebody came in my house, they got another thought coming, I'd take them out in a heartbeat. But you won't quit golfing on Saturday to spend time with her. Yeah, you'll die for her. But if it comes to hunting and her, you'll choose hunting. But you'll die for her. You just don't live for her. All right, we're uncomfortable. Oh, why did Jesus lay down his life for the church? It says that he might sanctify her. So we're going to get theological for a moment. To sanctify is to set apart. Uh, and sanctification is viewed in scripture as positional, happening at a position in time and process, happening over time in scripture. So is it here positional or is it process? I think because the cleansing says having cleansed, meaning it's a past action, that this is positional sanctification. So you say, Jerry, okay, what does that mean? This is a bit deep, but I promise you it's worth the dive. What this means is that when Jesus died on the cross, the cry, it is finished, was a once-for-all act in which he sanctified in that moment all who had believed in him by faith prior to that, all the Old Testament saints and all who would believe in him by faith after that. If you have come to faith in Jesus... In that moment that he cried, it is finished, before you were ever born, that was the most defining moment in your life. 
That cry reverberated through all of history past into all of history future. And in that one moment, Jesus sanctified you. He set you apart for himself. And you would later come to recognize that, receive Christ as your Savior. But there's nothing you could do in receiving Christ to sanctify yourself. He did it once for all, the writer of Hebrews said. And that's good news, amen? That's why the writer of that old hymn, Fanny Crosby, she wrote more than 8,000 hymns. She was blind by the age of six weeks, wrote that hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his word. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Why? Because she came to realize, though she was blinded physically, that some point there was a spiritual sight that she began to see life as she had never seen it before. And that went all the way back to the cross where Jesus died for her and gave her blessed assurance now of a joyful future. That's who we are in Christ, church. In light of that, Husbands, when you stand at the altar with your beautiful bride in front of you and the pastor, pastor asks the question, will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? However it may go for you. However those vows and those questions may be. Every time I think of this and when I do a wedding, I remember an experience Wendy and I had. Most weddings I go to, I'm officiating. I go with the robe. I always wear a robe. That way I don't have to match up anybody. And so I go with the robe and I'm just ready to roll. But this was a wedding in Greenville, South Carolina. I wasn't officiating. We went as guests. Close family friends. It was a 2 p.m. wedding. It was at a large church, but it was in their old worship space, which was a, a really a cool building with a, you know, really just a, a, a cool vibe. And it, it was one of those that had the organ up in the balcony. I mean, the organist sat up there. It just wasn't pipes up there. It was the organist sitting up there. And so the organist was playing and, uh, and 2P rolled around and the organist kept playing. And as I listened, I could tell he was recycling music. And I leaned over to Wendy and I said, we got a problem. She said, what is it? I said, the organist is playing songs he's already played. That's never good. She said, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but something is going on. I remember still, it was 2.07 p.m. when I looked down at the end of the row on which I was sitting and I saw someone go, Jerry. It was a family member and they motioned. I walked out and they said, the preacher didn't show up. Could you do the wedding? Well, thankfully, I wasn't wearing jeans. I was dressed more decent than I am right now. Had on a tie. I'm going to a wedding. It's two beer. So I'm, I'm dressed decent. I said, sure. I walked back and I said, could you give me, you know, your order? Oh, we don't have one. What kind of preacher is this? There's no order. I said, could you, you know, no notes, nothing. They have absolutely nothing. So I said, do you have a Bible? Yes, we have that. They handed me a Bible. I walked down the aisle like I had rehearsed. 
I walked up there. I gave a sermon on marriage. I went through an order, made it up myself, made up all the vows myself. Ask them all kinds of questions. I don't know if they were planning to answer those, but they did that day. They said their I do's and they got married and we were done. But you know what's traditional in all of them? Do you, do you promise, right? Do you promise? Will you take this woman to love and to cherish, to have and to hold in sickness and health and poverty and wealth as long as you both shall live? And you say, I do. When you do that, men, you're answering the question that was put to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he handed himself over to the authorities, told Peter to put up his sword, and willingly went to the cross to die for name-calling, unbelieving, backbiting, lust-filled, power-hungry, drug-addicted sinners. You are answering that question, will you? Love your wife like that. So, if that gospel is at the core and the center of a Christian marriage, a Christian company, a Christian school, what then is Jesus going to do with prostitutes and pimps and slave owners and slaves, wife beaters and husband haters, mean gossips and bullies, secret sinners and public embarrassments. What does he do with this collective group of people called the church? What is he going to do? He is going to, in this text, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Well, what does this mean for you and me, husbands? In the same way. There it is in the text. If you write in your Bibles underline, in the same way. Wow. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, some men love their bodies more than others. I was in my uh, office and I overheard a conversation. We have an amazing staff. I love them. But do you know what the whole conversation was over? Soap. Soap. Yeah, Adrian's got a thing with soap. And he's got it because Dave started it. Yep. These guys order soap from like unknown places. It has, they have various names and various smells. And there was a whole conversation out front and we had a sniffing party. Because Adrian had gotten in a fresh shipment of soap. Yeah, why? Eh, men love their bodies. Got to smell good, right? But this is so much more than that. You, when Jesus sets you apart, become his body. And he loves you. In the same way, that's how we are to love our wives.
As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me, that in him I might become the righteousness of God. All right, so husbands, here's the question. What is your vision for your wife? What is it for her? All right, if in the order God set up, you are to lead, every leader is to have a vision. Every leader is to have a vision. What is your vision for your wife? Who is she now and who will she become because she is married to you? You say, that's on me? Yeah. Yes, it is. You can't save her like Jesus did the church, and you for sure can't change her, but you can celebrate her. You can champion her. This means, and in my notes, the word never is in all caps, three times. This means you never out her. This is what Jane alluded to in the video, isn't it? You never out her flaws to others. You never talk bad about her to others. Unless you're sitting in a pastor's office or a counselor's office getting help. I tell young couples this. I tell my daughter and her husband who are in this service. If you're with people, other couples and they start to talk about one another in front of you, get out. Get away. That's poison. It flows. It will flow into your own marriage. You have no time or space for that. Some of you are struggling in your marriage right now. I know in a room this size, you're here. In counseling, we talk about triangulation. What is that? Well, in marriage, it's supposed to be a really good triangle. Husband is here, wife is here, God is here, and you move that way, right? And, and so long as both of you move toward God, you'll meet, all right? But... The next verse applies to this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All right, so men, you can't hold on to your mama and your wife too. I mean, if you, you can, but you're going to get torn apart limb to limb. Why? Because your mama cooks better than your wife. She's cooked longer. When she does your laundry, it just smells better. She tends to fold your clothes like you like them. She tends to put things everywhere. And guess what? Your wife doesn't care at all. Amen, wives? You don't care. No. You, you got to let go of that. You got to cleave to one another. So triangulation happens then when one partner decides, I'm going to turn to somebody else. And when that partner does that, this one could be moving toward God, but this one is moving toward something else. And do you see what happens? They never meet. 
So let's say if you were to turn toward a pastor, that pastor is going to go, oh, get back over here. But do you know what I've discovered through the years? That people struggling in their marriage somehow find other people struggling in their marriage and they strike up conversations at work. And this person doesn't help get this person here. This person's like, yeah, that's the way mine is too. Yep. Yep. It was good first two or three years and then everything just went downhill from there. Yep. And pretty soon, young wife, young husband buying it. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. I received a call over the weekend. Actually, it was on Thursday. And it's from dear friends of ours, and they don't live in town anymore. And the wife said, all right, I'm owning it. I'm triangulating right now. But my husband needs you bad. So I listened. I love her. love her husband. I listened. And I, I got to the end of the call, and I said, okay, I'm calling your husband. But does he know you're calling me? She said, he doesn't, but he will. I said, okay, it's the only way I'll call him. You got to tell him you called me. So I shot him a text. He texts back and said, yep, I feel like I've been reported to the principal. <laughs> I called him yesterday and we talked for about 20 minutes or so. And he said, I'm so glad to be at a place in our marriage that my wife is comfortable enough to get me help when I don't know how to help myself. That's a good marriage, isn't it? So here's how I want us to put this into practice this week. Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take communion with your husband and wife. I want you to do it as a couple. If you're in a life group, that will happen. Your life group leader has everything needed to lead you through communion. All right? It's part of the lesson that Adrian wrote. But if you're not, then grab one of the lessons because it will give you instructions on how to lead your own wife through communion. And Scripture is clear. If there's anything between you, take care of it before you take the Lord's Supper. Let that be an honest, open, good, worshipful time. For some of you, you may sit and confess awful sins that are secret. For others of you, they're not secret because you've called each other names. You've, you've lost your cool and you've left it undone. But for every one of you, it can be a sweet new beginning. One that you probably need. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to become sin for us then in you we might become the righteousness of God. And that reality 
is what lives at the middle of marriage, a Christian one. Two forgiven, flawed, imperfect people doing life together. Speaking truth, loving each other through thick and thin, oozing with imperfection, flowing with grace. I pray for the work of your spirit this week in couples in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.